0: Great to see amazing. everybody amazing welcome to freedom house you may have a seat we are so glad that you are here today celebrating our freedom celebrating our independence you know some people might ask you know why is a church getting involved in political things but as my husband said it so apropos It wasn't that the church was trying to get involved in political things. What happened is the government started trying to meddle in church things. So we are kicking back. We are pushing back. We are educating the people. Yep. And so I'm excited today because um, we, uh, Charlie and I met probably about a year ago in Arizona. He's uh, good friends with a couple of my friends. And there's a few churches in America that are really becoming the tip of the spear, just kind of pushing forth on issues that are really important to, that aren't really political issues, they're Bible issues, like abortion and marriage and family and and essential church and the truth and things that we Pick really need gender. to stand up for. Yeah, and so, you know, I don't know if you know this or not, but the church is, if you remove church out of America, America wouldn't be what it is. Um, if you remove church out of the world, it changes everything. And all you have to do, if you've never, if you've ever traveled to countries that, that God is not welcomed, um, you will find that out very quickly. Yeah. And so I just, I'm so excited to have Charlie with us, his, his lovely bride with us, their family. Um, we also have a bunch of people online. Gosh, man, there's a ton of people Alabama, Arizona, California, Colorado, Florida, Georgia, Indiana, New Jersey, Nevada, New York, Ohio, South Carolina, Texas, Washington, That's Wisconsin, South Dakota. <laughs> That's not a C. That's a D. Well, it's kind of small. Massachusetts, Guatemala, Brazil, Spain, and Uganda. Come on. Let's give it all up for them for being with us today. All over the world. So great to have you joining us from all over the world. I don't want to forget about you. And so we met. um, I love Charlie. He's fun to hang around with. He's real. Uh, And the, the thing that I love about him so much is the fact that he loves God. And everything that he does is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so, um, can, can I get you to do one more? Could you, could you stand up one more time Heck and yeah. give Charlie Kirk a big Freedom give House Church give welcome? Come on, House give it up love. for him.
1: We will not embrace the ideas that have destroyed countries, destroyed lives. And we are going to fight for freedom on campuses across the country. That's why we are here. Thank you guys. Thank you. Please sit down. Thank you. Happy Independence Day, everybody. I love I this day. It's probably my favorite day on the calendar. I know people get upset when I say that, but I, I love when you get to celebrate freedom and the ability to be able to live in a nation where you can have church and you can assemble and you can... Um, you could pursue virtue. It's so rare to be able to have a nation like we have here. What I love about this church and the Maxwells is they've, they've really created a place here, and they've, well, the whole church is called Freedom House, but also here on this weekend to celebrate ultimate things. Talk about ultimate purpose. And that's really what the Founding Fathers were focused on. And they, they were not small thinkers. They were ambitious, and they were, they were trying to design a system but first, they had to separate from one prior, and that recognized things that are always true, that are eternal truths. And so, on this July 4th, I'm just thrilled to be here at a place that's literally called Freedom House. It's very fitting. And, and also, as we ask ourselves, how does it apply to us today? And then we're going to talk about um, kind of the scriptures, and what do the scriptures point us to of, of trying, to get, trying to get our our trajectory, and almost our mission statement right. And so I was thinking, I'm trying to make every one of these services a little bit different, uh, but there are some things I do definitely want to repeat. And it kind of hit me as I, as I was rereading the declaration for literally the like, 50th time in the last couple days. You guys ever get that where you start to read a document and new things start to pop out at you and new things start to speak it towards you, is that this really was the mission statement for the American founding. And what's so amazing is there's not one thing that is listed in the Declaration of Independence that... Is no, is no more true today than it was back then as far as, the, as far as the statements of human nature and our moral right to be able to govern ourselves. And so of course it starts with, when in the course of human events? That's a big statement. That means that it's applicable throughout all time. It's not just right now in 1776, but it's saying that we're about to talk about some things that human beings will always be able to say. So what is a human being? A human being as Aristotle would say, is the speaking beings. Now, I can, I can show you a difference between a human being and a dog. A human being is able to do what we call the common noun miracle. This is the best way to explain to a five-year-old what a human being is. So, for example, if I asked you guys, what is this? You'd say, oh, that's a bottle of water. You might never have seen this bottle of water before, but immediately, without you realizing it, your brain sees this and it automatically says, oh, I, re- I recognize the form of that, I recognize the figure of that, that's a bottle of water. You see, that's called the common noun miracle. It allows us to be able to interact or else we'd have to relearn everything every time we go into a room. For example, go fetch me a pen, Go, go get me a fork. You might have never seen that fork before, but you know it because that, as a human being, you have the ability to categorize things in their place and their purpose. Only human beings are able to do this. Dolphins can't do this, love dogs, dogs can't do this. And so what this is, is a human document. It's basically saying, look, if you're a human being, you have a right to be able to say these things. You have a right to not be dominated by another. You have a right to be able to, your permission is required before a legislative or executive action is taken. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary. Boy, necessary. How often is it where we know we have to do something and we don't do it? A lot. So, they're saying it's necessary, but then they're actually acting upon it. Maybe it might be something as simple as going to the grocery store or, you know, hopefully picking up kids from something. Hopefully you do that. But there are necessary things all the time that we don't do. The question is, what, why do we know things that are necessary that we don't do? And sometimes it's we don't want to pay the price of doing that necessary thing. We're going to get to how Thomas Jefferson at the end of this document completes the point where he says, look, we know what is necessary, we know what we're going to do, and then we're willing to actually pay the price for it. For one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. So let's just look at some context, right? So there were, about 13, there were 13 colonies and some kind of unattributed territories, and those were, of course, formed of people that were called pilgrims, right? We, we learn this story around Thanksgiving. Now, let's think about that word pilgrim. Anyone ever hear about going to Israel as a pilgrimage? Right, of course, you've heard that. So, but why would we call people pilgrims that are coming to America? That's strange, isn't it? It's because they were coming to America because they wanted to form new Israel. That's why. They wanted to go after God's purpose in a new land because they felt as if their religious freedom and liberty was being persecuted in uh, England at the time. So they come to America and 13 different colonies are formed. from, And each colony had a different religious um, sect, you could say, that they were focused on. For example, in New Jersey, Princeton in particular, heavily Presbyterian. Uh, Presbyterian. Whereas uh, Pennsylvania, heavily Dutch or Quaker, every state had a little bit of a different um, religious view. But they all had this idea that, we, that there was an omniscient, an omnipotent, an almighty creator. And so throughout the 1600s and early 1700s, America was under British rule. And there really was no question about it. You know why? Because everyone else always before had always lived under the rule of another. This kind of idea of just living under a king was normal. The same way that we've kind of grown accustomed to going and voting, it was in the muscle memory of existence of the early colonialists. No one ever questioned it. It's just the way it was. And so then in the 1740s and 50s, all of a sudden, people that are very similar to Troy Maxwell started to pop up, and they were pastors. It's called the Black Robe Regimen. Every child in America should become familiar with the Black Robe Regimen. These were pastors that all of a sudden started to preach what is called the expositional teaching, verse by verse and chapter by chapter of the entire Bible, one in particular, if you guys really want to feel bad about yourselves um, and then find Jesus right after, go read um, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards, which was given over 25,000 times all across America or the early colonies in the 1750s. But what happened is these pastors started to rise up in the 40s and 50s, thanks to the Protestant Reformation that happened before it in Europe. And they started to go to the citizens. They said, hey, you guys need to go read the Bible. You need to repent. It says in 2 Chronicles that that people who repent, in fact, I think I I have the exact verse here, that those who repent and go back to God will be blessed. I'm paraphrasing. The, The essence is that before the American founding, there were decades of groundwork that was laid by the American church. And that people started to lean into the word and all of a sudden they started to give their lives to Christ. And then finally in the 1760s, some very smart people started to say, hold on a second, I've given my life to Jesus, I'm doing the best I can to be obedient, can someone explain to me why we can't run our own government and why King George is in charge? And these ideas started to spread and no one really had a good answer, but they said, well that's the way it's always been. And many of the American founders said, well that's not good enough for me. Uh, We we have a way that we want to govern ourselves, and King George is burning our towns, and he's bringing armed forces into our local areas, and we're not cool with that. And so then the French-Indian War ends in 1763, which we actually, as colonists, if you think back to where we were at the time, we were fighting alongside the British against the French. We won, but then all of a sudden, the British had a problem. They had to pay off their war debt. So because of that, they started to tax the colonists and started to act kind of almost as bullies towards the original uh, American colonies. You know, we know that taxation was part of the American founding, but we never asked the question, why were they raising taxes to try to pay off the war debt from the French-Indian War? And then in the early 1770s, you started to have these amazing speakers pop up, like Thomas Paine, who started to ask the question of, how are human beings supposed to live? Are we supposed to live always under the subject of some person that just is born into rule? Or should we have a say or the capacity to be able to elect our own government? Now, there were local governments at the time. There was a Continental Congress that was formed, but it lacked their own sovereignty. At the end of it, it really came to this tension point that the United... It wasn't called the United Kingdom. The British could come in and do what they wanted. And this sentence right here, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. That's a big statement. So you have to understand the other context before this. Right before the founding fathers, there were these thinkers that started to come up and they started to look into the natural world. You might know them as Sir Francis Bacon. Had nothing to do with bacon, okay? He was the guy that invented the scientific method. Or maybe Sir Isaac Newton. And these were men that started to look into the natural world and started to say, we are Christians, is there, is there a coding or a DNA of how the world exists? So I am now gonna take a sidebar and I'm gonna tell you the type of person that frustrates me the most, an atheist, and I'll tell you why. And so before I do that, I never wanna hear again from anyone that the founding fathers were somehow agnostic or they rejected a higher ultimate power. God is mentioned five times in the Declaration of Independence. In fact, Thomas Jefferson says, the reason that we can rebel against you, King George, the reason we can disconnect is because there is a law, a natural law, that is above your, co- your edict and your authority. We're appealing to something higher and bigger. That yeah. we're appealing to the laws of nature and nature's God. So here's what it was at the time. Sir Isaac Newton wrote a book called the Principia Mathematica. We know those are the 3 laws of physics, pretty simple, force equals mass times acceleration, an object at rest will stay at rest, for reaction action there's an equal and opposite reaction, super simple stuff. But then all of a sudden if there are laws of nature, it's somewhat simple. I'm sorry, it just yeah, what? It's if there are laws of nature, there must be a law maker of nature, right? That's the simple part of it, okay? And so This this, so Sir Isaac Newton was super interesting. By the way, he wrote more about biblical prophecy than he wrote about uh, just the natural world or science. He was a devout Christian. In fact, this is a good thing because everyone's like, "Oh, trust the science." And Christianity is anti-science. Just so you guys know, out of this in the Scientific Revolution, there were fifty-two top scientists. 50 out of 52 were known Christians, and 36 out of 52 did their work to the glory of God. That was back during the scientific revolution. So just a kind of little fun sidebar. But understand that this statement, the laws of nature and nature's God, in the context of 1776, what they were saying is that all of this discovery that's happening around us, as we're starting to understand the natural world, uh, what, what is gravity? The second law of thermodynamics, the inevitable law of decay. We say that there's a creator who put this into place. Now, let me take a sidebar about people that say that there's absolutely nothing or otherwise known as atheists. By the way, if there's atheists here today, God bless you. I know you don't believe in God, but thank you for being here. And so, I mean that. And so, the first thing I always say, and this, this applies to the Founding Father's worldview, is that I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I do not have enough faith... To believe that everything around us is an act of randomness. My friend Frank Turek talks about this quite often, Is is that we look at how you look at the deoxyribonucleic acid of our DNA structure, you look at even just the natural world and how it interacts, and you look at our ability to build structures like this using math, which is the language of the natural world. And I'm not supposed to believe that if the earth was 2% bigger, human beings would not exist, and 1% smaller, there would be no capacity for us to be able to even breathe or exist. That all of this is just a roll of the dice. I don't have enough faith to believe in that. In fact, Christopher Hitchens, who's one of the four horsemen of the atheist movement, I, always, I almost always say four horsemen of the apocalypse, but it wasn't that. Four <laughs> Well, I mean, anyway, so uh, Four Horsemen of the Atheist, he was kind of one of the smug atheist types. Again, I want to say this, if you're an agnostic, you're completely outside of that. Agnostics, God bless you, I get that. Agnostic comes from a Greek word agnosis, which means without knowledge, right? An atheist is somebody totally different. An atheist is someone that says, I know, I have discovered there is nothing, and there will always be nothing, and everything here is randomness. That, that is something that I take a great deal of exception with because that is a theological view. That is something that's basically saying, I have figured everything out. There's no rhythm. There's no beauty. There's no wonder. All there is is our current consciousness and existence, and we have no reason to believe there's anything higher than us. And to believe that that's all there without a creator that made creation, I believe, takes way more faith than those. Okay, Christopher Hitchens, as I was saying, in a moment of rare honesty, when somebody asked him, they said, hey, what's the best argument that the creationists or the people that believe in God have? And Christopher Hitchens, who was a devout atheist, said the fine-tuning argument. He said the fact that the earth exists in its form with the perfect composition of oxygen to hydrogen, the ability to be able to Interact, he said the fact that the earth is fine-tuned enough to be able to have human life, that's a really hard argument for atheists to be able to refute. Now he never he he said that once in one interview and denied it publicly after, but I think that's really true. I think that is the best argument that we have is that you're trying to tell me that everything that we know to be true, the more that you look into the scientific and natural world, the more it should confirm your faith. Let me say that again science confirms the truth of the Bible, not the other way around. There has never been a scientific discovery that has not confirmed the truth of the Bible. The second thing I say to atheists, which is kind of just fun, which is that uh, without without God, there would be no atheist. It drives them nuts when I say this and it's great. So the point is that thanks to a creator, you have the ability to believe that there's no creator, right? And then finally, when we talk about this with atheists, and by the way, I want you to imagine that if the founding fathers were truly atheists, they would say, the laws of nature and of nothingness entitle them. If the founding fathers were atheists, they'd say, the laws of nature and of randomness would entitle them. Or if the founding fathers were atheists, the laws of nature and of our own consciousness entitle us. No, they said instead, the laws of nature and of nature is God, they were saying that there's something that is bigger than all of us. That's what they were writing when they were appealing to King George. The last thing I say to atheists, though, which is very important, is do you hope you're wrong? Do you hope that there is eternal meaning? Do, regardless if you think that, and it's kind of this old thing, would you believe Christianity if it was true? And people say, "Well, of course I would. Really? So you'd change your entire life then if it was true, though, then, right? Because are you willing to do that? The point is that is it, is, are you not following Christ and accepting God because you think there's not enough factual evidence or is that it might cause massive life changes and you don't want to do that? Which one is it? Is it the fact that, I don't know, that means I'd have to stop going to this club and stop doing this and stop doing that? Or is it that, you know what, I've thoroughly vetted Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and Acts, and through my archaeological expertise, I believe that the evidence is questionable at best Did Christ ever exists. Like, yeah, okay, first of all, no, you didn't. Second of all, the point is that, and, and, and I encourage any skeptic, and I, I, skeptics I'm perfectly cool with, to go and search for it yourself. Go, go, go look into the original manuscripts of the Gospels. So people say, well, you know, the, the Gospels were written many years after Jesus. Well, the first Gospel was probably written around 65 to 70 AD, about 35 years after Christ. Now, mind you, at the time, they had a very heavy oral tradition, right? So they had no TikTok, no Twitter, no Instagram. The point is that there were people that had the entire Old Testament memorized completely. So they were a lot more, let's say, precise with language and the ability to pass down truth. But 35 years is not that long. That would be like somebody right now, writing a book about the fall of the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. That's not that big of a gap to just write a piece of a literature about the Savior of the world and put it into writing. And then all of a sudden is the cost of the disciples after that. I'll get into that later in, in the remarks. The point is, do you hope you're wrong? What is the reason you don't believe? Is it really because you've come to this unquestioned conclusion that you have evidence that there is nothing. That evidence does not exist. It takes faith to believe that there is nothing. There are two types of faith. You can have faith in Christ or faith in randomness. And I have, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bet on faith in Christ. So he said, laws of nature and is God. A decent and a p- respect to the opinions of mankind, capital M, requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident. What does that mean? That means that every person can understand what we understand. They weren't doing the current college professor thing that you guys hear now. No, 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 you must get a degree from Harvard to understand what I, no, no, they're saying no, every person can understand what we're about to say. That this document, anyone who reads it, they can come to the same conclusions we can come to. That from someone from the peasant to the person at the top of the church, whoever it is, if you read this, the truths here, anyone can comprehend. That all men are created equal. That's a big deal to say when it comes to forming a government. And they're saying that, look, King George, you don't believe this. Now, where does this idea of human equality come from? Human equality comes from a Greek word, isonomia. It means it is not mo- the same stuff. It's not even same talents, right? We have like professional golfers here. We got all sorts of like amazing athletes here. No, it means instead equality under God and God-willing equality under the law. It means that everyone is made in the image of God, and everyone under that system, we understand that everyone has the same moral right under that system, including pre-born people that that are not able to defend themselves to people that are fully developed. And that among these certain unalienable rights, endowed by their creator, capital C. Now, mind you, not endowed by randomness not endowed by chance not endowed by science no by their creator and they also didn't say not endowed by you king george not endowed by whatever you got going on because we don't like that certain unalienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness now i want you to understand out of the 56 signers of the declaration of independence Every single signer except one we can prove is a Bible-believing, regular church-attending Christian. There's one that's awfully questionable. We're not going to get into him. But I'll take 55 out of 56. Out of the 56, 14 were pastors. So if you read over the scriptures and you read over the inerrant word of God, you'll come to these same conclusions. God gives you life. God spoke you into existence. We're made into the image of God. And also you're going to come across this other Greek word eleutheria which this entire church is named after freedom freedom house but this idea of freedom is only understood in the biblical context if you know your normative state which is we are in a state of bondage to sin we are bonded to our broken nature and everyone has their own version of that it could be a substance it could be a friendship it could be a relationship it could be a website it could be a song. It could be something that you're bonded to that is in disobedience to the Lord. And liberty is not being able to go do that thing. No, actually, liberty is actually getting away from that thing and then being in alignment with how, the God, wants, how God wants you to live. That's liberty. And... When I go to sometimes even a Christian audience, I speak on college campuses, so you guys don't have to, right? So um, we do this at Turning Point USA. We have a lot of fun. And when I ask sometimes even Christian audiences, I say, what is liberty? I just had this happen. They said, liberty is being able to do whatever you want to do, however you want to do it, whenever you want to do it, as long as it doesn't harm somebody else. I said, what if it harms you? They say, oh, no, no, that's liberty. I could choose what's best for me. I say, that is not liberty. That's indulgence. That's fine. There's other words we can find for that, right? But that's not liberty. Liberty is the pursuit of virtue. And only the Lord gives liberty. Liberty is not man's idea, it's God's idea. Liberty is obeying his commands. It says that very clearly in James 1.25. We're going to talk about that. But life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, government are instituted among men, deriving their powers from the consent of the governed. We went into this in great detail in the other services, but I'm going to skip ahead to a part that I really didn't talk a lot about. But I am going to talk about this. King George has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. Oh, is that it? Sounds like a great guy. If you read the list of reasons why, the founding, why Thomas Jefferson, the Founding Fathers, did this, it's exhaustive. He gets very specific. So the declaration starts wide, gets narrow, and then it ends wide. But you see, the Founding Fathers, they wanted to try to solve this peacefully This is the important part that isn't always talked about. We have warned King George from time to time of attempts to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstance. We have appealed to them, and they have been too deaf to the voice of justice. We must therefore acquiesce in necessity to denounce our separation. But here's one of the most amazing parts, is that in general Congress assembled, we appeal to the supreme judge of the world. I make the argument that the founding fathers were not being disobedient. They were being obedient to their creator. And they were saying that our rights and our liberty and our ability to live how God made us was in current violation under that tyrannical rule. This was an act of obedience that the founding fathers did. Now, this is, some people will say, well, Charlie, what about Romans 13? Happy to go into that. Romans 13 basically says, uh, it's Paul wrote, he said, uh, Submit to all rulers and authorities because they are there for your good. That's an important thing to remember because what happens when they stop being there for your good. The founding fathers, and I make the argument that needs to be made more, is they did not declare separation willingly, meaning that they offered, they said, can you just grant us this without having to go to arms? We're telling you everything you did wrong. Who declared war on who? Lexington and Concord, we know the first shots were fired by the British, and they forced the hand of self-defense. And the founding fathers then said, fine, if you're going to keep on ravaging our towns and kidnapping our families and putting soldiers in our homes, then we're going to put in writing, all 56 of us, what we believe and why we believe it, and we're willing to pledge ourselves, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Now, how many people in America do you think are willing to give up every single dollar that they have for liberty? Here today, Would, if I told you right now, I want you to think about, I'm sure all of you have looked at your Chase Bank account app or your Wells Fargo or, you, is Bank of America's kind of big around here, right? Yeah, they're no good. But um, yeah, no, none of these banks are good, by the way. They're all awful. They're all canceling people. They're doing all sorts of crazy things. Okay, Bank of America, fine. Okay, Bank of America. And so I want you to imagine all of a sudden, whatever number you have in your bank account right now, it goes to zero for liberty and no guarantee you're actually going to get it. That's what the founding fathers pledged. I want you to imagine never seeing your family again. That's what the founding fathers pledged. Now for us, we have things great, luxurious, pleasurable, because those men decided to do that. And so there are three things I want to mention here. Time's really getting away from me here. It's kind of funny. It's every service I kind of get more warmed up and then finally we're done. Three things we must remember looking back on July 4, 1776. So here's a, here's a question. What happened on July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd in 1863? Anyone know? No. It's the Battle of Gettysburg. Right at the same time. It's kind of amazing how everything always happens in these times. And our republic almost fractured and fell apart. And because of the result of the Battle of Gettysburg, and then Abraham Lincoln famously gave the Gettysburg Address four and a half years later, where he said four score and seven years ago, Our forefathers sought of a nation conceived in liberty. And so he was going all the way back to this date, back in 1776. The first thing I want everyone to walk away with from this message is this word that we do not say enough in our culture, which is gratitude. We should just be so thankful of what we have been given. And guess what? None of you can take credit for it. Some of you, if you served in our military, can say you played a part In this beautiful gift that we're all enjoying today. The first thing is gratitude. And the scriptures tell us to be thankful for things that are beautiful and good and noble and true. And we should say, my goodness, are we lucky, are we blessed, I should say, that we are able to even experience this small moment in liberty in this republic. Gratitude is something that we should have here on this July 4th. The second is eternal truths is things that are always true. So it says in James 1.5 that if you you desire wisdom, to ask the Lord and he will give it to you generously. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is the knowledge of things that never change. Wisdom is the knowledge of things that are always true. So I tell students all the time, and college doesn't do this basically at all, is to go learn things that never change. Go filling your head with just temporary facts is fine, Go seek things that never change. So people say, well, give me an example of that. Well, we have a whole book dedicated in the Bible to things that never change, Proverbs. For example, a man who finds a wife finds a good thing. We got married May 8th, and I could tell you that's very much a good thing. And so, or a man who does not work does not eat. These are, these are things that are always true, no matter what happens. And the declaration was written around these eternal truths. The third thing that we must remember as we look back on July 4th, 1776, is that the type of government we have and we live under matters. And it matters especially to if we care about ultimate things like the gospel of Jesus Christ. I understand politics is messy. I understand government is frustrating. I understand politicians are crooks and liars. But it says in Jeremiah 29, 7, to seek and demand the welfare, the peace, the well-being, the serenity of the nation and the city of which you are in because your nation is is the nation, your welfare is the nation's welfare. And I'll prove it to you. I want someone right now to go start Freedom House in Wuhan, China. Good luck. The scriptures are right. Good luck spreading the gospel if all of a sudden there's a government that will imprison you because you dare to spread the truth. Now, we talk about this every so often. I want to tell you how brutally true this is, though. That most of the rest of the world does not experience what we all just get to comfortably kind of roll into church and have. The largest country in the world, China, not even close. They have an underground church movement, and guess what? They're imprisoning pastors at a record rate. Canada has just locked up another couple dozen pastors because they opened up in defiance to their public health orders. You look at the Soviet Union, which, by the way, most young people don't even remember this, don't even know the Soviet Union. I know. They don't teach it in our schools. I just sat down with a couple of high schoolers, and they are like, What's, what was the Soviet Union? Nothing. Never learned it once. Now, you guys remember East and West Germany, you remember the Berlin Wall, you remember that kind of persecution. But in the Soviet Union, their mission statement was all about power. Their mission statement was all about control. And what I'm saying here is that the Declaration of Independence, the mission statement of the Declaration, is all about liberty and life and freedom and ultimate things. So, mission statements matter. You know, at Turning Point USA, we have a very specific mission statement, which is that we want our children to love America again, and that we play offense with a sense of urgency to win the American culture war. Your mission statement matters for countries, for civilizations, but also for you. So what's your mission statement? You gotta have a mission statement for the year, but what's your overarching mission statement? Maybe your mission statement is to seek pleasure wherever possible and have a great time. Maybe that's it. That's what most people is, by the way. Maybe your mission statement is that nothing matters and we're all just kind of a cacophony of nihilism and I hope I have fun along the way and I want to revolutionize everything. Have you ever thought of yourself of writing down your mission statement? Well, the mission statement that really matters, that's going to matter most, is whether or not you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so the founding fathers wrote their mission statement. They said, look, we know what a human being is. We know how they're supposed to be governed. There's a moral right to be able to exist and among those... Our life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, all men created equal, we're going to do the moonshot, we're going for everything, and we're going to, we're going to be able, we're, we are going to sacrifice for it. But I guess the question that I'm going to ask here is, that was a mission statement for our country, and I pray that we can hold it. But what about a mission statement for yourself? And so, the mission statement that matters is what Jesus said in John 8:31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The Bible says very clearly, and this is how I know, the founding fathers were just amazing because they, when they made the Liberty Bell, they put Leviticus on the Liberty Bell. I mean, anyone who actually reads Leviticus, really great. So, and by the way, that's how I know that you're like a serious Christian, right? When all of a sudden you're quoting Leviticus, I'm like, perfect, right? It's like, if you're, if you're getting into Leviticus, it's great. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a year of jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family, property, and to your own clan. That's on the Liberty Bell. It says in Galatians 5, It is freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. And so what Paul is saying here in Galatians is, if you don't get your mission statement right, all of a sudden, you're not going to be able to have eternal life. He says here, he says, look, the acts of the flesh are obvious. So maybe your mission statement is to pursue pleasure, do what feels good, have a good time, right? Just, you only live once. Let's just, okay. Then Paul says, that's fine. If your mission statement is this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, the acts of flesh are obvious. Now, I want you to think about if this sounds like our culture today. Sexual immorality, impurity. Debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Oh, he keeps going. Envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this or have a mission statement that says this, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that quote, that, that verse is not used as much because everyone knows the next couple of verses, which are the fruits of the Spirit rarely do we talk about the ones before because it's a little bit darker, right? But if your mission statement has a Christ-centered mission statement, if you make Jesus the chairman of your board, if you say that I want Jesus to be the most important thing in my life, I'm going to accept him into my spirit and my soul, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying with each other. So I'd love to invite the the band to please come back up. And so what you have here is two different visions for a mission statement for your life in Galatians. So I want you to think today, as you celebrate our beautiful country, America was able to succeed and thrive because they got the mission statement right early. Because the founding fathers put in writing things that were true and they were willing to contend for them. And those truths are still applicable today and that's why we're able to have the fireworks and the celebration. Every time you see a flag today, I want you to think they got their mission statement right. But Paul says right here, you got two different ways you can live. You can have a mission statement in defiance where you're doing discord, hatred, witchcraft, jealousy, fits of rage or you can accept the spirit. So what does that mean? Well, a lot of people here are saved uh, thanks to the gift of Jesus Christ, but there's people here that I are probably hearing this for the first time. So I gave my life to Jesus in fifth grade, and every year it means more to me the older I get. And so here's really what it means. The stereotype of religious people is that we're going to hand you a scorecard at the end of service, and you're going to have to report back of whether or how good of a person you've been the last week. Like, oh, that's, no, that's not how this works. Instead, God wants to accept you exactly who you are, to remake you totally and there is no earning this. There is no filling in the boxes, there is no trying to achieve this, instead it's just accepting this gift for free. So let me say this, Jesus is a real person. He did come to earth, he was born of a virgin, he performed real miracles with real disciples, he turned water to wine, he fed the 5,000, he walked on water, he raised the dead, he was persecuted for a crime he did not commit. He, he was killed for something that he never should have been killed for by the accusation of his peers where they'd rather have a murderer than someone who is was, who was perfect walk amongst them because he dared to speak truth died, rose after three days and then he appeared to well over 1200 people including his closest disciples from, the, from doubting Thomas to Paul who had no motivation at all whatsoever to ever do what he did he was living a life of luxury persecuting Christians and turned it all around And we have four different accounts of this including the acts of the apostles of the actual, the the price they were willing to pay for the truth. No one willingly dies for a lie. No one willingly dies for something they know not to be true. And every disciple and person that knew Jesus at the moment that they were about to be killed for their faith, they did not renounce Jesus and they died knowing the truth. From there we have the, the writings of Paul as I mention here. And for those of you that are skeptical and very logical and try to find reason like I do, go search. And you're going to find what I found. You're going to find that all of a sudden that there's archaeological evidence outside of the Bible that proves that Jesus was real. Go read Josephus. You're going to find that there has never been any person ever that has walked the face of the earth that has said what Jesus has said and has been able to create a movement with ever raising an army, conquering a land, or raising a sword instead of speaking words. Find me one person that's ever been able to do that, maybe because he had truth to say. And when he rose again from the dead, he fulfilled a covenant that you can live forever. So here's how it's gonna work. Everyone's gonna die. Everyone, that's the one. You wanna talk about human equality? That's human equality. And then when you die, you're going to face your creator. And our creator loves justice. And he's going to be like, here's everything you've ever done wrong. It's going to be a long sentencing hearing. (laughs) All of the times you were in disobedience. And basically, it's like, well, since you were so committed to being away from me, why don't I send you permanently away from me to hell if that's what you wanted? And then that's when the real moment's going to happen of whether or not you're going to be someone's going to tap him on the shoulder and say, no, 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 no! I know that person they accepted me they lived for me while they were living and they can enter the kingdom and eternal life it's that simple, so what does that mean? that means that you just have to pray a simple prayer and mean it, accept Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior and this wonderful church can guide you through all of that and what it means but I could tell you once you accept Jesus your whole life changes, everything does it's, it's truly being born again. But it's one thing saying the prayer, but it really is saying, this is going to be my new mission statement. The mission statement really should be something like, Jesus is Lord, I give my life to him, I am not enough, and I want to live for him. That's the mission statement. As the founding fathers got America's mission statement right, I, I ask you today, are you going to get your mission statement right for your life? Will it be the mission statement that Paul says, the fruits of the Spirit? or in disobedience or defiance. So let's pray right now as we reflect over these things. Dear Lord, thank you so much for this wonderful country, the greatest country ever to exist in the history of the world. We thank you for the ability to have the service to worship your son and to accept him as our Lord and Savior. I pray for people out there right now that might be struggling with this, that your spirit will speak to them. Maybe someone is thinking right now, you know, it's time that I give my life to Christ. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand or come to the front, but if that's you, you can just pray a simple prayer that says, Jesus, enter my life. I know you are Lord. I know what you said is true, and I wish to be remade. And if you prayed that very simple prayer, there's many people here at this church that can help you. And Lord, I pray for our leaders. You say that in 1 Timothy, that we pray for our leaders by name. I pray for our president. I pray for the senators. I pray for people to make godly and wise decisions for your good. And Lord, we thank you that... Those men on July 4th, 1776 got their mission statement right. And we're able to live free thanks to that. And I pray that everyone here will recommit to a mission statement that puts you first. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Honor to be here. Thank you. Come on, give it up for Charlie.